This morning we'll be in uh, John 15. If you can turn there, unless you're going to look in the order of worship. Um, next week we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. And uh, actually going to spend three weeks in Genesis chapter 1, uh, looking at God, then creation, then humanity. Uh, we're going to start a series from Genesis called Foundations of the Faith. And just sort of uh, begin to lay some of the, the groundwork for the faith that we have that we might also communicate. Uh, to those we meet who do not believe. So that's kind of where we're going, just so you know. Um, but this week isn't part of that. This is completely something different. John 15. Should be a familiar passage to most of you. But let us hear the word of our God. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, so that, you, uh, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I call you friends. For everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. Why don't we pray? Father, as we come to you this morning, we long to hear from you. And I ask that you would reshape our hearts, continue to dismantle all that is built on the lies of this world, continue to build us up in the truth. I ask that you would deal gently with us, for we are but jars of clay made of the dust of the earth. But restore us in the glory that you intended. Remake us in your image, that the world might behold the wonders of your grace, power, truth. And love. 
And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our great high priest, who sits at your right hand for your glory and our good. Amen. Shortly after we got married, I came home from work one day and discovered that Amy had been shopping. And what she bought was a tree, a fruit tree. And so she had diligently gone into the backyard, dug a hole, plopped the tree in there. Now, unfortunately for us, we had no irrigation in our backyard. And so this tree did not receive all of the water it needed. It never died, but it probably came close to the brink of death many a time. But over the course of our entire married life, it never bore any fruit. In fact, I don't even know what kind of fruit tree it is. (sighs) I'm not a good gardener. Amy's probably a better gardener than me. There are things that we, not knowing much about fruit trees, that we didn't do that we probably should have done, that this thing might bear fruit. And of course, the irony of it all is that right before, while we're packing the pod to move to Florida, what do we see on this tree but blossoms? I don't know if they're going to come to fruit this year, but at least there's blossoms. If the new owner waters it, maybe it will come to fruit. Fruit. It's what Jesus is talking about. It's what we are expected to bear. And yet there's a reality that just as I was supposed to tend my fruit tree, we see that the Father in this text is tending the vine so that it might bear more fruit than it already has. So that's what we're going to look at today. And uh, it's part of what we, how, I, how I look at what's going to happen here at Desert Springs in the years to come. Uh, it's not just about what Jesus is telling them. It's also, I think, pertinent for us. So the big idea this morning is that the Father prunes all who believe in Jesus to bear more fruit for His glory. The context of this portion of Scripture is that Jesus has ended His uh, public ministry. He is about to go to the cross, which I guess is public ministry, but not a teaching ministry, which is my point. He is instructing the disciples in this farewell discourse. He's saying goodbye to them, but he's also preparing them for his departure. Not just for his crucifixion, but also for his ascension, as uh, Chaplain Hess talked about last week. And so we live within the same context that the disciples did, uh, that he's preparing them for anyway. So that's part of why I think it's important for us to grapple with this. And what Jesus does is that he begins by using some imagery that was very familiar with them. Now, Some of them were tax collectors and fishermen, but they all lived in the same area. They all knew, and they all probably all talked with people who were involved with agriculture. So they're familiar with this idea of vine dressing. And if you want to know more about vine dressing, you probably will have to ask Christopher, because he's about to become very familiar since his wife brought home a vine, a grapevine. So my wife's not the only one who buys fruity things without our knowledge. Jesus starts off with the very last of the I am statements that we find in John's gospel. There are seven, and this is the final one. He declares, I am the true vine. And he repeats this later on, so we better get this. We we need to understand what he means by the fact that he is the true vine. Jesus is declaring himself to be the source of all true spiritual life. 
That He is the one that we need to be connected to. That if we're not connected to Him, nothing's going to happen in our lives. If this congregation is not connected to Him, nothing's going to happen in the life of this congregation, at least that is good. But what Jesus is also doing is He's borrowing Old Testament imagery. We see this in Isaiah. We see this in the Psalms. We see it in many places where Israel is the vine. Except when God used that imagery for Israel, it was not necessarily a good thing. Because every time God goes to that vine, he finds it's like my fruit tree, barren. And so all of those contexts in the Old Testament are contexts of judgment because Israel has not borne fruit. And so what we see here is that Jesus is declaring that he is, in fact, not just the the true vine. He is the true Israel. He is the fruitful one. The wrath of God shall not descend upon him because he doesn't bear fruit. But he is indeed going to be the source of all spiritual life for his people. The second time Jesus says, I am the vine, he then follows that up with, you, on the other hand, his disciples, are the branches. The disciples, as branches, are dependent upon him as the vine. They depend upon the vine for strength, the sap to flow through and to keep it alive. The power to produce fruit comes not from the branches, but it comes from the vine. Branches by themselves, as Jesus says, wither and die. It's as if I were to remove part of my arm. What would happen to that part of the arm? It wouldn't live. It would die. It would wither. It would fall apart. It would be worth nothing. And so there's, a, there's the, the, the warning that we must remain on the vine. We must remain connected to Christ from whom all the spiritual power flows. That word, remain, or abide, or dwell, is really a theme that runs through this portion of John chapter 15. How is it that we actually remain or abide in Him? How do we remain connected to Christ? Actually, that's fairly simple. It's faith. Faith is how we remain connected to Him. It's not something that we do, but we believe that He is true, that what He has done matters for us, and that His promises will come true. And so the Word of God becomes essential for us in that process of remaining in Him. Precisely because it is the faith comes from hearing the Word and from reading the Word. And so what happens is if we are seeking Christ, we're not seeking a a mystical, subjective kind of experience, but actually we are seeking Him in the Word of God. We are discovering who He is and what He has done in the Word of God that we might believe it and remain connected to Him. Not only is abiding connected to faith, but we see here as well that abiding is connected to love. Jesus talks about remain in my love, and He's using the same word, abide in my love. In other words, we will not seek Him 
unless we are first convinced of His love for us. Eli has developed this strange little habit lately, and all of a sudden he perked up. Oh, Daddy's talking about me. (laughs) Hiding in closets. I don't know where this came from, but now suddenly he likes to hide in closets. And sometimes when he's been disciplined, he wants to go hide in a closet. At that moment, he is not aware of the love that we have for him. The love that, in fact, prompted the discipline. And so, fearing that he is not loved, he hides. And that's what we will do with Jesus. Fearing that we are not loved by him, we will hide from him. That is why we must remember the cross. For there is no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And that is precisely what Jesus in this text is about to do. And for us, he has already done. And so we can remain confident of his love. That we might remain close to him and not, so to speak, hide in a closet. And so all true disciples are connected to Jesus through faith and through love. I do that, I say that to kind of set up where we're going now, and that's more the idea of the fruit. And we could spend more weeks on this passage and not say everything or address everything there is to, to talk about here. So I'm just going to focus on this idea of the fruit, that the Father prunes us to bear more fruit. So now a third party is introduced into this. It's not only Jesus who is the vine, we who are the branches, but his Father who is the farmer or the vine dresser. He is the one who cares for the vine. Much like I was supposed to care for my tree. But I assure you of this. He is a far better farmer than I am. Okay? We are in good hands as his people. So uh, let us not fear. But he does prune the vine. And when he prunes the vine is after the fruit sets. The, the, the grapes will appear upon the vine, and then the, the farmer will go to work to prune it back. And what he's doing is he's taking off all the branches that don't have fruit so that all the strength and the power of the vine goes into the fruit, not into branches that are just kind of hanging out there doing nothing, so that you get abundant fruit, big fruit, significant fruit. If you leave those, those extra branches on, the fruit will be diminished. It will be small. And it will not sustain the people for whom it was intended to sustain. The branches without fruit, in fact, are removed. They're cut off. And what would happen is that they would be tossed into the fire to produce charcoal. And there's something of a warning there. Let's keep in mind the idea from the Old Testament that Israel was the vine. And part of what Jesus is saying is that, in fact, Israel was the branches. And the, ba- the branches that didn't bear fruit are removed from the vine, just as we see in Romans uh, chapter 9, uh, sorry, 11. He's warning about false counterfeit Israel, but just as he's warning for that, now we look at it in terms of what we call the visible church. And there's a warning that is there for the visible church False professors of faith, 
people who actually bear no fruit, that there is a warning that they too, though they look to be connected to the church, shall be removed and judgment shall fall upon them. So there is this negative aspect that exists in the midst of this overall very encouraging text. Those who are fruit, who bear fruit rather, are cut back so that they might bear more fruit and better fruit, tastier fruit. So what happens, what Jesus is communicating is that the Father at times will cut back parts of our lives. Parts of our lives that actually keep us from bearing more fruit. Unproductive parts of our lives. I thought of J.I. Packer when I was preparing this. I read a a biography on J.I. Packer a number of years ago. And uh, even before he was a Christian, when he was still a child, one of the things that happened to him is that he had an accident and he had a head injury. And so as a result of that head injury, he could not be like many of the young men of his day, in his place, England, meaning he didn't play soccer. He couldn't, he couldn't devote himself to sports, and so as a result, he devoted himself to something different, studies. And so in the process, God produced one of the great theologians of this century, a man to whom I owe so much, not because I know him, but from reading his books. And, and as a young Christian, I look back and the foundation for my faith and in, in, in all that I believe is primarily laid by this young, well, this man, J.I. Packer, who became what he is partially because God pruned his life as a young boy. So God does this to make us fruitful. The fruit, in fact, according to Jesus, are the, is the evidence or the proof that we are abiding or remaining, or, as he puts it another way right here in this passage, that we're his disciples. He would say, if there's no fruit, then how can you say that you're my disciple? It doesn't make sense. Because if you're really connected to the vine, you will bear fruit. So what fruit, in this text anyway, is Jesus talking about? I want to lay out three things and then a kind of an overarching thing. And the first thing, I think, is that the Father prunes us to produce prayer. Prayer is throughout this text, that uh, Jesus, this discourse that Jesus gives, because he, he reveals to us, as we should know, that the Father wants us to pray. The Father wants us to make requests. We had a joke in Sunday school this morning about praying without ceasing. Uh, and That's what Paul said. We were to pray without ceasing. But what happens is sometimes our lives get so full, so busy, that we're not praying. We're so busy doing everything that we're not praying. And so sometimes the Father cuts back our lives, so that we might be more engaged in that thing called prayer. Precisely because prayer is born of our weakness and our limitations. And when we feel strong, guess what? We're not praying. If we're confident in ourselves, guess what? We're not praying. And so God reveals our weakness to us. He reveals our limitations to us, in part through this pruning, so that we see... uh, our lack of things, that we see our need for Him, that we might pray. 
Prayer is also born of faith and love. We must believe that He exists, as it says in Hebrews. But we must also believe that He loves us and He does have a good plan for our lives. And so when we're praying, we're praying in light of those things, that He exists and that He loves us and He wants to do good to us. If we're not convinced of those two things, guess what? We're not going to pray. And the Father must remind us. And so what happens is that prayer and loss sometimes remove some of the distractions from our prayer life. Because we can become very selfish in our prayer life. I, I know I can. When life is going good, I'm just thinking about you know, all kinds of bonus stuff. And, our, and an amazing thing happened when our lives were pruned in the past couple of years. Uh, was that it was almost like my prayer life became dominated by one thing. Lord, I need, a call, I need a call in keeping with the call you've placed in my life. I need to provide for my family. I felt like almost like that was all I could pray about. That was the only thing really, that was the main thing on my heart and it needed to be at that time. And so sometimes God can remove some things from us to redirect our prayer life into things into a direction that he wants us to be praying because that is where he's going to move us. That he might get the glory because we realize it ultimately does come from him. So the Father prunes us to produce prayer. The Father also prunes us to produce obedience. This is another one of the themes that Jesus brings up. He wants us to be more obedient I, you know, that sort of rubs a little bit against the culture of our day. I understand this, but it doesn't rub against the, cult, the, the experience of Scripture and what God wants for us. If we abide or dwell in His love, what happens is that our, our love for Him will grow and our obedience will grow as well. Jesus talked about this in the earlier chapter, chapter 14. If you love me, you will obey me. Okay, when we're, when we're, we've got to keep that in mind or we will misunderstand what Jesus here says about the, remaining in the Father's love. That somehow our obedience earns the Father's love. It, it doesn't. It can't. Because His love predates our existence. Our, his love for us is proven by Him sending His Son to be the sin-bearer. But not just the sin-bearer, but the law-keeper. I've kind of started to tell my kids that. That not only did Jesus die for their sins, but that Jesus kept the law for them. So that they are indeed righteous in Christ because He gives them His obedience. Because ours is so lacking. And yet... As a result of his work, Jesus, as we read about in Titus chapter 2, he wants us to live upright and godly lives in this present age, in the here and in the now, eager to do good works. He prunes us that we might become more obedient. Because, and we might be more loving. I mean, love is kind of the the basis of this whole thing. Because one of the realities is, is that when we sin, we love something else more. What happens if you steal? 
You have loved that item or what it can give you more than you have loved the God who told you, thou shalt not steal. Right? What if you lie? Well, it depends why you lie. If you lie to get ahead, it means that you love your social advancement more than you love your God who died upon the cross for you. If you lie to cover up something wrong that you have done, then what happens is that you are loving the approval of others more than you love your God. And so, what dri- one of the things that drives disobedience is a lack of love for Him. That can only be resolved as we go back to the cross and see His love for us. It all keeps going back there. And we see this prior command that we are to love one another. Jesus says that here. Love each other. But he says elsewhere, love one another as I have loved you. And so he's not just sticking to the Old Testament commandment of loving your neighbor, but now he's kind of upping the ante, love as I have loved you. And when we look at how he has loved us, we see that he laid down his life for us, sacrifice. And so our, our love for one another is to be characterized not just with warm feelings and a fondness for one another, but also with a sacrificial aspect where we are taking care of one another's needs as we are able. Part of what I try to tell my kids, love. I go back to that earlier commandment and, and, or statement of Jesus in John 14. If you love me, you'll, you will obey my commands. And so I, I try to tie it back to if you love your mom and dad, one way you show that love is through obedience. I was uh, in one of my final weeks at Ace Hardware. It was a Saturday. We were trying to close, and there was a customer who was in who had a strange dishwasher issue. Um, The makers have changed the hookups to the dishwashers. They're no longer what they used to be. It's it's bizarre, and I won't go there. Um, But ask Dick. He probably knows. You you do know about this, right? Yeah. Isn't it strange? Okay. His testimony. Two or three witnesses. We're good. Okay. But anyway, there's this guy. We're, you know, it's like, uh, I want to go home and see my family. And he's trying to get this stuff. And he's like, I got to get this done tonight. Um, or my wife will be mad because she doesn't want to have to hand wash the dishes. And so, being the pot stirrer that I am, <laughs> I said, Well, you know, what you could do is maybe. Do the dishes for her. Are you crazy? I'm never doing dishes, he says. And what I heard was a man who didn't love his wife. Because he was not willing to serve her in such a simple area as doing the dishes. Which I guess bounces back on me, because I wasn't even willing. I was too tired to help my wife with thank you notes last night. I was tired. I was ironing for an hour and a half. Um, But you see, how love and obedience and sacrifice are all tied together in God's economy. 
And so don't you see that not only are we the objects of his incredible love, his never-ending, never-stopping, always-and-forever love, as it talks about in the Jesus Storybook Bible, we are also meant to be the instruments of that never-ending, never-stopping, never-breaking, always-and-forever love. And so we see that, if we break this down, not only has Christ, God loved us in Christ Jesus, okay, the objective work of God, but we also see that He works in us that we might be loving people so that He might work through us that we might love other people, particularly the body of Christ, but also those outside of the body of Christ. So part of the fruit that, Jesus, that the Father is working to produce in obedience is love. You'll see I do that a lot with that triangle. You'll get used to it. You know, here he goes again. So the Father prunes us to produce prayer. He prunes us to produce obedience. But he also prunes us to produce joy. He wants his joy, an everlasting joy, a joy that nothing can destroy... Because he is forever blissful. Not even our sin can destroy his joy. Okay? He wants that kind of joy to be in us. What a great God he is. What a good God He is, that He would want that joy to be within us. And so His love for us should produce a great joy in us. Knowing that we are loved by one like Him should produce a great joy. Don't you feel good when you know your spouse loves you? Hmm? Aren't you filled with joy when you hear from your parents, I'm proud of you. I love you. When He says it, it's exponentially greater, or at least it ought to be. When we read about it in Scripture, our hearts ought to be filled with joy, knowing that we have the love and the pleasure of our Father in heaven. It should fill us with joy. Precisely when we seek our joy, not in other things, but in Him. As Piper says, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. That's the whole idea of seeking our joy in the Father. And the amazing thing of this is, if we think about, back to Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is my strength. I've got a little cup at home, mug at home, and I've got that. And I'm glad it's out of the box now. So I, I, I need to be reminded of that. The joy of the Lord in me, because I am loved by Him, is meant to be the strength that enables me to love my spouse and my children and to love His church. And it is the joy of the Lord that is meant to come and fill our hearts so that we are doing what we are called to do. Not with arguing and complaining, but with hearts filled with joy and gratitude. The gospel at work. And so, to accomplish this, part of what he does is he prunes us from the substitute joys of our lives, from the, the ways in which we're looking for joy in the wrong places, so that we might have the superior joy of God in Jesus Christ. One of the things that we did before we moved was we had a yard sale. 
Yeah. I'm glad I got sent to bring the kids to the park. I don't like dealing with yard sale people. And if you're a yard sale person, I'm sorry. It's already a dollar. Why do you have to you know, try to get it for five, 50 cents? Come on. One of the reasons I brought the kids was because their joys were disappearing for 50 cents. Some of the things they took joy in were going goodbye. And we wanted to save them the trauma and my wife the drama. But it wasn't just them. I noticed that as we were kind of laying some things out, it was like, man, that grill served me so well for a decade. Isn't there room on the pod for that? There were things there that I was reluctant to let go of. There's sometimes the Father removes things from us that our joy might be redirected to be more completely upon Him. What's His goal in all of this? Why, why is He producing prayer and obedience and joy? Uh, Jesus gets there. He says that the Father prunes us to bring Himself glory. All these things, all these fruit that we've, we've looked at, and there are more, they ultimately mean praise to the ones, meaning the Father and the Son, who produce them in us. Jesus, because He is the vine from whom all spiritual health comes, and the Father who prunes it so there might be even more spiritual life, more abundant fruit. The Father is seen as the wise expert farmer who is to be glorified. Jesus is seen as the superior vine of great value, who is to be glorified. And so what happens is that our fruit reveals the worthiness of God, the excellence of God, the graciousness of God, the goodness and kindness of God, because we, do we deserve any of this fruit? No. But it's there anyway, because of what He does. And so our fruit reveals how worthy God is of praise and adoration, how worthy He is of of us seeking our joy in Him. But it's not just that. When we are filled with love and joy as, as the Father desires, as we saw as fruit, what happens is that we also begin to inadvertently Passively commend the faith to other people. There is an idea of, I want what they got. I don't know what it is, but I want that. Marty and I were talking a little bit on the way back from El Paso, and, and one of the things he, he said is, like, I like the RUF ministers, because there's an excitement and a passion that they have that I want us to have. So even as Christians, we can see other Christians who are growing and faithful, and we go, that's what I want. I need more of that. And that is good. And that's part of, this is part of one of the, the ways in which I try to approach apologetics with you know, people with other worldviews and say, what does your worldview produce? Is it producing this kind of love and joy? Because ours is supposed to. The fruit of our Christian life is meant to be part of the apologetic or the defense 
of the greatness and the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can their faith do that? Ours is supposed to. Well, as a congregation, you all have been pruned lately. Right? The last couple of years have been a little tough. That's part of God's process to produce more fruit. To make the, abund- the fruit more abundant and more tasteful and more delicious and more satisfying. And so God cuts you back that you might bear even more fruit. He wants to produce even more prayer among you. He wants to produce even more joy among you. He wants to produce even more obedience. Not just in you, in us. Okay? As we remain in Christ, who is the source of all spiritual life and health. And by this, the Father means to gain himself much glory. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the past faithfulness of your people here at Desert Springs. We are grateful for this time of corporate pruning and even individual pruning, though it has often been painful. And so we ask that you would make us more fruitful in prayer, in love towards one another and those outside, towards obedience to you and your word, towards joy and faith. May we continue to be a community that is increasingly transformed by the gospel, and therefore a community that attracts people to you. Grant us all hearts to receive and believe your word, not just from 11 to 11.30 on Sunday morning but all through the week. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our great King, who subdues the stubborn sin that remains in our hearts. To the praise of His glorious grace. Amen.